Hello and welcome to the Filmmaking Stuff Podcast, where you'll get insider tactics on how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, LA-based motion picture executive, Jason Brubaker. Hi, filmmakers. Today we're joined once again by my friend and former mentor, Craig Spector. He's a New York Times bestselling author, but importantly, he's done a lot of work in Hollywood and his stories are fantastic. We're going to just join him today where he talks about what he did after him and his writing partner broke up. If you're just catching on to this ongoing series, I highly recommend that you just go ahead and stop today and go back and listen to the previous parts of this interview. That'll give you a lot of context for what Craig's all about. I am so excited to be able to share the rest of the story because I know you're going to get a lot out of it and uh, just take a listen. Because you've always been identified as, as this writing partnership, I can't imagine like now you have to go solo. Well, yeah, and I had to I had to put it out to the world that my my first name is not Ampersand. You know, it, it's like uh, my name is not End Craig Specter. You know, uh, it's like, and really, I had to put it out that I'm not half of something; I'm all of something else. And I. I set out to do that. It's like, well, that, that was my mission at the time. And I went back, you know, uh, creatively uh, that, that operated on a couple of different fronts. It's like, well, I have relationships now, you know, I have professional relationships. The, the young editor that first bought the light at the end has gone up the ranks and he's now, you know, the vice president of a publishing company. You know, I have a good relationship with him, you know, um, and I had to come up with a story that was completely different, uh, that, the, that the work itself would, tr- would kind of communicate that I'm not half of something, I'm all of something else. And so I was kind of like, you know, I knew I had to do that, and I knew that that was a great idea. I just didn't know what the hell the story was. You know, um, and then one day I was, uh, I was in my apartment in L.A., and I'm just kind of going about my day, and I was talking with uh, talking with somebody on the from uh, an old friend from New York on the phone, and um, and I had the TV on in the background, and I looked over, and it was tuned into CNN, and I saw some there were some crime thing being reported, and these two kids who had committed this like just brutal murder were being arraigned, and they were just exhibiting absolutely zero remorse or anything, you know, they're in court being arraigned for this, you know, gruesome murder and they're just laughing and, and fucking it all off. They don't care. You know? And I thought about it for a second. I'm like, wow, I wonder what it would be like to be like the parents of the kid that got murdered by these two idiots, you know? Um, and I thought and I'm on the phone with my friend and all of a sudden I'm like, uh, I gotta call you back. You know, and I, I hung up and I'm like, this is it. I've got it. I've got the idea for the new book, you know? Um, and so basically what I decided had decided was I analyzed the, uh, the entire body of work of Skip Inspector up until that point, you know, everything that, that it was all about. Uh, and then I just having established that model, I inverted the model, you know? And it's like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to do something that's completely, not just randomly different, but, you know, sort of strategically different from everything else. You know, Skip Inspector was uh, one of the features of the Skip Inspector oeuvre, 
was that you know it was it was heavy and it was like body count horror uh, in a lot of ways. A lot of people die horribly, right? In a Skip Inspector novel, and by the time we got to the bridge, I mean basically, you know, the bridge was the uh, the penultimate Skip Inspector novel, and it was about uh, a, an ecological story about the last twelve hours of life as we know it, as uh, some midnight midnight dumpers dump one too many barrels of toxic waste off a bridge in the backwoods of Pennsylvania on one dark and stormy night. And, uh, and it hits, you know, they, they don't realize it, but they've inadvertently created the, a new primordial stew, uh, from, from which life, all life sprang, uh, except it's toxic. And, you know, it, the barrel hits the water and a bolt of lightning strikes, the barrel is as hitting the bolt of uh, as it's hitting the barrel, hitting the water, and boom, life. Except the life is just basically sentient, intelligent poison. Yeah, you you guys are weird. And yeah, <laughs> like I said, take those personality <laughs> defects, turn them into the creatures. So, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but in a sense, you're, you're you're that's what you had to do in your own world. Yeah, and so you know, basically, the the story of the bridge is the story of this thing comes to life, and it's like it's walking, talking poison. You know, it's an intelligent alien life form that's here. You know, and and it was also, uh, I think we were informed by uh, somebody had asked uh, David Cronenberg, the director, yeah, uh, what what he thought about the AIDS vi- the AIDS virus at the time. You know, um, because that was you know. Uh, back in the late eighties, early nineties, when the, it was the AIDS plague and thousands of, of mostly uh, young gay men were dying horribly from right. this disease. And they were asking about, they were asking Cronenberg, who was like the godfather of body horror um, about, about this. And he said something to the effect of, you know, it, it's so horrible. Uh, but if you look at it from the virus's point of view, it's really having a wonderful time. Oh gosh. You know, and, uh, you know, cause he's a sick fuck and, uh, you know, but it's an astute observation. And so, uh, you know, I was thinking about that and it's like, well, this is, this is intelligent, sentient poison, you know? Um, but it's also, it's toxin, it's toxic and everything around us is toxic, you know, in the modern world, you know, everything we use every day has poison in it. And we walk around in this modern world consuming and we have poison in us and so everything has the sleeping uh seeds of this thing and so in the bridge uh it comes about that uh this is walking talking sentient poison and it starts going about and everything it touches it awakens the toxicity in that thing and it becomes aware and it joins the party. Mm. And so it's like the last 12 hours of life as we know it, because this thing wakes up and then sh- just starts taking over, you know? Um, and by the time the body count was done with that book, we're basically setting the stage for murdering the entire planet. Uh, because we started off, with the outline, we started off the book and, and you know, we turned in the outline and in the outline of the book, um, 
there was going to be all these thrills and chills and horrible, disgusting things happening. And then somehow at the end, you know, our, our characters, our good guys, uh, come in contact with Gaia, the earth spirit and achieve some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of peace, some sort of detente, you know, um, and that sounded good on paper, but then we got into actually writing the book and researching the book. And the deeper we got in, to the actual research about toxic waste and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just realize it's like, you know what? Uh, there's no way out of this. There's no way out. It's like once that fires, that's it. We're done. Oh, man. And so we wrote that book, and that book was dark as fuck. Um, that was your last book together? No, that was the next to the last book. Uh, Animals was the last book. Um, okay, good. And then, so I'm there sitting there as a solo artist. And like I said, I was analyzing, you know, the Skip Inspector body of work. And then I realized it's like, okay, so Skip Inspector at its peak basically killed off the entire planet. You know, um, so in this book, uh, I'm going to, first of all, nothing supernatural is going to happen. You know, no, nothing supranatural is going to happen. Nothing mystical or magical is going to happen. It's all going to happen in the real world. And the next thing is, instead of a, a body count in the thousands, I'm going to concentrate on one death. One particularly brutal, grisly, horrible, tragic death. And examine the ramifications of, of the ripple effect of that on, on the people around it. And it was all going to be just set in the real world. And that was basically, uh, that became my novel... Uh, when it was when it was first published, um, the uh, uh, the title well, my title uh, for the book was a question of will. When I was writing it, and then it went to the publishers, and it came back and was like, "Could you change the title?" You know, and it's like, "Well, to what?" You know, it's like, and it's like, "Well, something that pops a little more." You know, and so oh, you, know, you chose that because it had double meaning, if I remember. Like the character's yeah. name was Will. Yeah. yeah, because the character, you know, it's it's this it's this inexplicable death, and then they get the suspect, and he's just this young kid, and his name is William Wells, and um, and the father of the murdered girl uh, is an uh, he's a firefighter and and a, an EMT in Jersey, just outside of New York, and so his entire life is uh, about helping others and and putting himself in harm's way, risking his own life to help others, you know, and then he comes across this and it's his own family and he, he can't do anything. He watches the machine, you know, the, the wheels of justice and everything. And, you know, everybody is wondering why, you know, ultimately it came down to the existential question of why did this happen? And no one has an answer. And so he sets out to find the answer. You know, why did this happen? You know, this kid is accused of this. Why is why did this kid do this? Why did he kill my daughter? And and how was that received with the publisher? Because by this time, you you completely reinvented yourself through uh, writing this book. Well, you know, I went back to uh, I went back to my uh, my original publisher, who's now you know up the chain at a different publishing house, and I went through my agent, you know, and I said, I you know, I called my agent and I said. Um, Tell Lou I have a novel and this uh, I have a novel I want to do and it's this, you know, um, and you know I I had written up you know I I had mapped it all out you know and everything and I had a a, a beat sheet for it and everything, and um, I told that to my agent. My agent called 
and and talked to Lou Veronica and then called me back as like Lou said um, he'd he'd love to have it. You know, and so it's like it's this weird redux, you know. Here I am starting over. You know, it's like Yeah, but I mean this this is also you know, some of the things that, that we used to talk about is the importance of personal relationships and look how that came back to yeah, help you. Yeah. And so then we sit there and we, uh, you know, he's like, Lou would love to, for you to do this. Uh, you know, he wants the book and I'm like, great. You know, and, um, we ended up, you know, doing negotiations and everything. And I sold that book of what was it? It was like 1990, 91. Um, it's my first solo novel. Uh, it was uh, we changed the name of the title to "To Bury the Dead," and I sold it for fifty thousand dollars. Full full circle, a fifty thousand dollar advance. Yeah, uh, and that was like weird. You know, I I wanted more. I wanted I wanted to break through the glass ceiling and, and get like you know a six figure advance. But yeah, I, I don't want to point out the fact that by this time fifty thousand dollars is worth a lot less than the first time you got fifty thousand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really, it really was poetic uh, beat to that because it's come full circle. Yeah, it's full circle, and I don't have to share it with anybody. Um, and so that started me down that road, you know. And then the other thing that was happening is because um, because John and I had philosophically different uh, creative ideas about Hollywood in general. Um, you know, John was more uh, John hated the Hollywood machine, just absolutely hated it, drove him crazy, he despised it. Um, he was gravitating more toward indie and, and that's perfectly fine. It's like, there's nothing wrong with this at all, but I was more like, I, you know, I'm going to get in this game and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get on top of this game, you know, um, you know, and so there were a lot of projects. Well, and, and I'll just, I mean, just cause you know, this is obviously an indie filmmaking podcast. You know, you know, what's fun though, Craig is like, I've, I've been grinding away in the, indie film world for a while and it's not it took me years to realize that the same amount of work that goes into making you know that small indie project is the same amount of work that goes into making like a big budget film exactly um just just a higher scale so it, it's funny and, and now i see that pattern in everything i do yeah business ventures real estate deals it's the same amount of work it's just one of them probably gets you a greater return yeah. maybe yeah exactly exactly and and the and the landscape has changed so radically um, uh, from like, you know, I'm talking about 1990 and this is 2019, you know, um, right. 1990 people still shot on film. You still had to go through some sort of like crazy distribution juggernaut to even get exactly. anything into the marketplace. Exactly. Just some craziness. But, um, you know, I just, uh, uh, just decided that, um, there were a lot of projects that, uh, that had been, had come along along the way, you know, been thrown at Skip Inspector and Skip Inspector turned them down because, uh, you know, because one wanted to do it and the other didn't. And so then I was a solo agent, you know, solo entity, and I could do a lot of stuff, um, you know, that, uh, that might come my way. And, and one day my agent called me up, uh, my film agent called me up and said, uh, what do you think about doing the light at the end, which was the first novel about the, the vampire in the subways, uh, that put all this on the map in the first place. He's like, what do you think about the, the light at the end for TV? And I was like, I've never thought about the light at the end for TV, but what are we talking about? You know? Um, and he set me up with a meeting with this, uh, this development exec. And I went and I met with her and we got off fabulously, you know? Um, and it's like, okay, so light at the end for TV. Why not? 
you know, and so the light at the end ended up being in development for an, a, a few years trying to get that off the ground. Um, and ultimately, and how does that work when you, when you're in development like that, are you getting paid anything or are you just kind of doing it for well, sweat equity? at the time, um, in the early to mid to late nineties, um, I kind of went off radar for a while, uh, because I wrote, I wrote like about, I don't know, the first hundred or so pages of, of, uh, of to bury the dead. And then of course, you know, I burn, I blown through my advance, you know, um, or I blown through the first payment of the advance and I won't get any more until I actually finish the book and turn it in. Oh yeah. But, and I should have asked this time when you got the advance, was it cash or no, did- no, at this point I was like, <laughs> I'm like, nah, just, just send me, give me a check. You know, it's like, you know, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I, I, I was free to, uh, do other things and I, I needed to make more money, you know? So I was just like, yeah, I'll, I'll, do this and and they were paying for development at that point you know and so and so i went you know i was working that project and then i would get a number of other projects i had a period of about five years running where i was literally going from from stepping from one project to the next project to the next project you know and i was writing just a wide variety of of stuff and it all had ultimately had some sort of dark twisted undertone to it but sometimes it was horror. Sometimes it was sci-fi. Sometimes it was thrillers. Sometimes, you know, I even wrote, there was a, there was one, I got a call one day where, um, you know, and it was the same development exec who was at a different company now. And I, you know, I, I step into my apartment and like, you know, my answering machine is filled up and, and all the messages is like, where are you? Call me back. Where are you? You know, uh, you're hired. Where are you? Save us. You know, <laughs> Wow. And, um, you know, I call him back and I'm like, so what's going on? You know, and it's like, well, they have this project that's in trouble. Um, and, but it's got a machine underneath it. You know, it's, uh, you know, this movie is, this movie is going to get made. They're just having a little problem that they don't have a shootable script. Um, and so, which is just so crazy to me, by the way, that that films would even get funded and greenlit without having a shootable script. That that blows my mind. I know to this day. I know it's crazy. It's crazy. But you know, they sent you know, and and as I'm listening to these messages, there's a knock on my door. I turn around, there's a messenger, and he's handing me. You know, I signed, and he's handing me a script. You know, um, and it's the script that they're talking about. You know, and I open it up and I I read it. You know, and. You know, I call the exec back and I'm like, yeah, yeah. She's like, did you get the script? You know, did you read it? I'm like, yeah, I got the script. I read it, you know, and she's like, well, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, I can, I can do it. I can fix this, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and so set up a meet. I go into a meeting the next day, you know, and I'm sitting down with like, you know, the execs and the director and this and everything. And, and I had the script with me and the script had been, I don't know who, who the guy was who wrote it. I think he was the, uh, the gay lover of one of the uh, film execs or something, you know? Um, right. But uh, it, the thing was like an unreadable piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and the story had been developed in house, you know? Um, and they were, they were trying to chase, this is TV and they were trying to chase two features that were chasing each other to the box office. And, um, one of them was Dante's Peak, and the other one was Volcano, right? Which were which were running neck and neck, you know, to the box office, and uh, and so ABC had decided that they were going to do the little bastard baby brother version called Volcano Fire on the Mountain, 
And it was the exciting, thrilling saga of um, a volcano that happens at a ski resort. And, you know, it's like, like Mammoth. Mammoth is, is a, Mammoth is a volcano, uh, a ski resort that's built on a dormant volcano. And so it's like, it's, it's not a bad idea for a made-for-TV movie in a sort of Irwin Allen disaster movie kind of way. I, I actually like it. And you reminded me of that whole era in our history, you know, where everybody seemed to be making a natural disaster movie. And yeah. I'm just so happy that you got in on that. Well, it was, and it was a riot. It was it was just totally a riot, you know, because I'm like, I'm in this meeting, you know, and I come in and, you know, they introduce me, you know, and the one exec knows me and, and the other people don't know me, you know, um, and they're kind of like, so what do you think of the script? And I'm like, yeah, interesting. I, I pull it out of my my bag. I, st- I still carried a messenger bag around, by the way, you know, um, and I pull it out of my bag and I'm like, yeah, you see this? And I just tossed it into the trash can. <laughs> no, you didn't. Like, like we're starting over. <laughs> it's like so. And this is so that. And this that's is how you approach the meeting and and maintain these relationships. I mean, what, that's a bold move, is what I'm saying. I was like, what do I got to lose? You know, uh, I'm just kind of like, and I'm not. I'm not just like. I'm not just like broadcasting some sort of you know uh, testosterone bravado or something. It's like. No, this is a piece of shit. I can't fix this. I can, however, start over. You know, and go back to the original story and write a story that you can shoot. And here it is. And, you know, and I had the beats laid out, and I'm like, and we do this and this and this and this and this. And I'm hired. I'm so hired. It's like, blah. You know, it's like they're like, great, go write that. You know, and it's like, great, talk to my agent. You know, and so they do, and we negotiate a deal, and I get paid. You know, and I start writing, and I swear to God, I I wrote, uh, man, I must have written ten drafts in two weeks of this thing. You know, and I'm writing; it's two hour, you know, made for TV, and I write uh, hour one and turn it in, and then you know, the next thing I know, you know, they 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 call up, and it's like they're uh, they got people in helicopters doing location scouting over Vancouver. Um, for hour one, and how am I doing with hour two? <laughs> it's like, I mean, this thing is like on a fucking it's rocket, moving, it's on a rocket sled, you know. And I've had at this point, you know, I've been in the, in the I've been on the game long enough that it's like I've got a little bit of the experience under my belt. And it's like I've had projects in development for years that have that have never gotten this far, you know, right, because because you. You're one of the you you are one of these guys that people have talked about where you're you're a writer that's made a hell of a lot of different deals behind the scenes that some of them credited but a lot of them not credited but you've still figured out how to how yeah, to do yeah. some deals it, to, it's to like keep I got, the lights I was on. getting paid I was getting well paid uh, but I was also off the map because none of these things it was uh, you know we've all heard of development hell um, a, a lot of these projects just they never made it out of development w- through no fault of mine. Uh, it's just, they just didn't make it through the machine. You know, I still got paid. Um, and, um, yeah. So I was just working away. And at one point, you know, there was a, I'm, I'm like, you know, pulling all nighters and like cranking out these drafts, you know, of the script and everything. And so, and there's, you know, uh, you know, my doorbell rings and I answer the door and here's, uh, here's a messenger delivering this giant fruit basket or muffin basket, you know? And 
you know, and I, I thank him and everything, you know, and, and I go take and put it on the kitchen counter and I, and I, uh, you know, and there's a little card that says Davis, Davis entertainment television loves you, you know? Um, and I open up the basket and it's this lovely basket with, you know, all these different things in it. And, you know, I called, <laughs> I called up the development executive and I'm like, wow, that was really sweet. Thanks. If you really loved me, you would have sent a basket over full of cap- coffee and cigarettes. Um, cause <laughs> Cause that's what I've pretty much been living on. Um, but, uh, I wrote like, uh, I don't know. I wrote 10 drafts in two weeks and the thing was green lit and then they, they shot it and they actually flew me up to Vancouver during production, you know, and I got to meet the cast and crew and everything. And that was a lot of fun. You know, and I went on set and I was actually standing on set. It was, it was a great moment where I'm standing on set and I'm watching, them block out this big scene in the ski lodge, you know, where like everybody's, you know, uh, it's a big disaster thing. Um, and they're talking like the, the, the star is talking to the director about his line and everything. And, um, and he's like, well, so what, what should I say? You know, uh, you know, what do I say at this point? You know, um, and he's, he's the chief of police and he's directing all the people who are freaked out, you know, and there's this whole crowd huddling in the ski lodge and the director is like talking with him and then the director stopped and I'm standing back, you know, with the development executive, who's my friend, uh, and we're back looking at what's going on on the monitors, you know, and I'm just kind of watching, you know, because as we know, you know, you're the writer on a, on a set. You know, right, like, right. That that never happens in the motion picture industry. I mean, if you were if you were a playwright in New York, yes. Yeah. If you're in a yeah, you know, forget about it, dude. Your work's done. Yeah, yeah. You're the birth mother. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're the birth mother, and if you're lucky, you get visitation. You know, um, and you're generally not lucky. You know, uh, so so did they did they acknowledge your presence and ask you for the right line? Well, it was it was really it was funny because you know all of this is going on and I'm just kind of watching it and everything. And all of a sudden, the director stops and is like, "Hey, wait a minute, we got the writer here." And he turns around and yells, "Writer, what does he say?" <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I thought about it for a second. And I said, "He says, you know, if you're standing, you're hauling." <laughs> And, you know, the director thinks about it and the star thinks about it. And they go, yeah, that's good. Let's do that. <laughs> Thanks. And I'm just standing back there like, hey, it's like, welcome to the dream. You know, it's like, yeah. Welcome to the dream. You know, well, Craig, I could talk to you and, and we should probably someday like get back on here and talk about everything that you're doing. Cause I know there's, hours and hours and, and just such good stuff and great experience that you have. Um, but just, you know, for the sake of where we're at in this conversation, I, I wanted to kind of fast forward to where you're working now. Um, some of the stuff you're working on. And I also, I'd asked you through email not too long ago, if any of the rights to your novels were available to be adapted into motion pictures and not to have any sort of shameless, um, plugs of your stuff here, but, but please have some shameless plugs of your stuff if they're available. Although, um, you know, you might get a lot of people that may not have the means, but now that now everybody wants to option your yeah. stuff. But <laughs> Well, actually, uh, just a, yes, at currently, currently the rights uh, are available on all of my projects. 
all of my books, the rights are available. I mean, um, so that's, that's amazing to me. I, with the, ex- um, with maybe- the exception of animals, which did get made into a movie, um, a couple of, a couple of years back, but uh, the rights to all the other books are currently available. Um, so I would, if anybody is listening, is interested, I mean, just, you know, uh, I, it's not even Google me, go on Amazon and type my name in. Yeah. Well, they should. Everybody, everybody listening to this should should take some time to read your work anyway. Because, look, you were you've you. I mean, I don't want to gush too much because it, it's just going to sound weird. But you were part of this thing in the nineteen eighties that became a movement. They called it the splatter punk movement. <laughs> yeah, sort of like the beat generation of our, of our time. Um, maybe maybe not you know carried on the way because it was very genre specific, but nonetheless. Um, it was it was a moment in time that was notable, and you know one of your books went to New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, I mean, Splatterpunk was a, was a thing that came came along, and it was a sort of an organic uh, evolution um, along the way. And uh, but it was also kind of a running joke. You know, it was never meant to be taken as seriously as it got taken, um, and it was just kind of a it was a fun little marketing hook. You know, because everything at that time was like uh, cyberpunk was big, so everything became like blank slash punk. You know, um, and we were a number of us. Uh, a number of us were sitting at a writers convention, and and David J. Scout was the first one. We were having one of those things over drinks where everybody was playing the blank slash punk game, um, and just throw it out there and see what anybody says. And and then, you know, various iterations were offered up and rejected. You know, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, David Scow goes splatterpunk, and everybody sitting around the table went, "That's it!" <laughs> it's like, and we're at the, the convention, and then we go to you know our panels and stuff, and we start using the S word. You know, it's like splatterpunk, and all of a sudden the thing just lit lit up. You know, and it's like it's splatterpunk. This is really exciting. You know, and suddenly all, everybody's talking about splatterpunk, and we were doing interviews about splatterpunk. I went back to New York and I talked to my editor. You know, um, again, Lou Ronica, I talked to my editor, we were going out to lunch one day and we're like, you know, walking down in Manhattan and we're walking to lunch and, and I was like, yeah, so what do you think about, what do you, did you see the article and such and such? And he's like, and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I really wish he kind of hadn't done that. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and I didn't understand at the time. I was like, what? I just, it's, it's, it's just cool. You know, he's like, no, nah, I really wish he hadn't done that. So you, so you branded something outside the control of the machine. Well, and I'd also branded, I had participated in branding myself into a box that was going to become like, a, you know, a chain, oh, got a it. chain around my neck, you know, in terms of trying to, you know, uh, evolve, live up to that. Yeah. Evolve out of that and away from that. Okay. You know, um, which I didn't realize at the time, which I came to realize all too much later on when it really did, when I really did feel like the, uh, like I don't want I don't want to be I don't want to I don't like being in boxes, you know. Um, and so I broke out of the box, but then everything changed along the way because publishing changed, you know. Um, right. And now in 2019, everything has changed. Everything like film, television, publishing, you know, comics, everything has changed, um, and we're in a whole new landscape at this point, which doesn't mean that, uh, you know, gravity has ceased to take effect. I mean, gravity still works, you know, but just things that uh, used to exist don't exist anymore. Um, new things have come to take their place. Are, as some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. But uh, there's still, I think, enormous opportunity uh, 
for any creative out there who's willing to do the work. Um, and I think indie, you know, that's why I always, I always had a, a lot of respect for what you were doing, um, carving out a niche for yourself because, you know, the future, increasingly the future is indie. Um, well, it was actually, I saw some of that stuff happening in the music industry and the publishing in, industry, exactly. probably not in that order, probably the opposite order, but I, you know, it was only a matter of time until we would see disrupt the entire industry disrupted by digital distribution. Yeah. Um, so that, that's how filmmaking stuff was born. I, I saw that as an opportunity to really brand myself. Um, this is so fun though, talking to you, Craig, because it's, it's like, it's like one of those old conversations we used to have. Um, just through a whole different lens with a lot of uh, experience behind us. Um, and, it, and you know, you said something to me so early on, and, and, and it's fun to have this conversation. Again, I, I'm gushing, but you, you mentioned something to me way back in the day, which is another one of these things, aside from the part about not asking permission, um, but also the part about, like, using the resources you have to, yes. to do what yes. you can do now, to do the work. And that, that's become like a, a huge tenet of everything that I, you know, evangelize because I don't want filmmakers to wait around. Yes, exactly. Waiting for everything to be waiting perfect. for waiting for everything to be perfect. Waiting for people to give you permission to be who you really are. Hey, this is Jason Brubaker chiming in again. Um, man, what a what a great conversation. You know, it's it's just funny. I guess it I guess it's pretty obvious to you where I get a lot of my philosophy, and it's just so fun to be able to share with you uh, some of the origin of how I think and why I think the way I do. So make sure you tune in next time for future episodes with Craig Spector. There's still more to the story. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Filmmaking Stuff podcast with Jason Brubaker. If you like our show and want to get more filmmaking info, make sure you check out filmmakingstuff.com and join us every week for new filmmaking tactics. Until next time, take action and make your movie now.